Luke chapter 16. We're going to start in verse 14 as we continue our series in Luke. As the Pharisees respond to what Jesus has been just teaching with the parable of the unjust steward or dishonest manager, we're going to look at how the Pharisees begin to respond and how Jesus interacts with them. Luke chapter 16, actually start in verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for, he, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we look at this admittedly difficult passage as Jesus and the Pharisees have a confrontation, as the Pharisees mock Jesus in an attempt to justify themselves, as the Pharisees attempt to keep themselves from looking at the truth of what Jesus is saying and allowing the law to tutor their hearts and point them to Christ and their need for him. Father, we pray that we would see what it is that Jesus is saying to the Pharisees and therefore what it is that your spirit is saying to us, your church. Give us ears to hear your word. Help us to be those who, like your son, exalt the law and the gospel who use the law lawfully, who see our need for the good news of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Lord, we pray this in your son's name. Amen. As we were going through Luke 16 last week, I pointed out to you as we were going through there that Jesus is dealing with the hearts of his disciples, telling them, that they, they cannot serve two masters, that they must serve God and not money, that, that, that they can't serve both. They'll either love the one and hate the other or love the other and, and hate the other. They, they can't have it both ways. And as Jesus begins to tell them that you must devote yourself to the Lord and not to money, that you cannot be both a lover of money and a lover of God, the Pharisees who were listening to Jesus instruct his disciples, begin to mock him. Because see, what Jesus is doing is he's going after the fact that greed, or the way we use our money, the way we see money, the way we see what God has given us to steward, demonstrates a lot about our hearts. If we see what God has given us, which all things that we have and all things that have been created have been given to us to steward well for his glory, they all belong to him and we're supposed to steward them as such. If we see them as such, then it demonstrates that our hearts love the Lord. If we see them as things that we steward for our own ends, for our own good, then our hearts demonstrate that we really love ourselves, that we're in love with this present world that we love money and not God. And Jesus says, your hearts are going to be demonstrated by the way you treat money. If you see your money as a way to be used for the gaining of friends eternally, for the sake of others, then, you, then you're demonstrating a heart that loves God. If you see your 
people or friends as those you use in order to gain money so that you have temporal treasure and comfort, then you are those that hate God. Your hearts are demonstrating a hatred for him. And this is a problem for the Pharisees who are listening in. Because as Luke, in an editorial sense, tells us in verse 14, if you look there, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed them. Isn't that an interesting editorial note that, that Luke just throws in? Why? Because Jesus just said, you can't love God and money, and then Luke in an editorial fashion, as the Pharisees begin to mock Jesus, throws in this comment, the Pharisees, who, by the way, were lovers of money, i.e., those who don't love God, began to ridicule him. What's ironic about that is the Pharisees believed they were the ones who loved God. In fact, they're ridiculing and mocking and snaring at Jesus because they're feeling conviction over their own sin with regard to their loving money, but rather than going on to repentance, see, because we can feel convicted and never repent, can't we? We can feel a worldly sorrow where we feel very badly about what we've done, but we never press on to repentance, where we turn another way, where we look to Jesus And these Pharisees are feeling convicted, but they don't want to go on to repentance. So what they do when we we feel convicted and don't want to go on to repentance is we immediately go to self-justification. We immediately look for ways to justify ourselves because we can't face the truth about ourselves. So we do that in various ways. And I'm not going to list all of them. Let me give you a couple of examples. We immediately begin to justify ourselves by looking at other people. This is what the Pharisees are doing. They're trying to compare themselves to other people. See, they have set up a standard that is outside or separate from the law, which they believe really is the law, that really demonstrates their real love for God. And They say, we feel conviction for our sin over what Jesus is saying, but rather than going on repentance, we're going to justify ourselves by mocking Jesus and saying, listen, you and your disciples don't really keep the law. You really don't. Not like we do. You say that this is what it means to love God? How can you say you love God? You don't keep the law. Your disciples violate it all the time. Look at the crowds you hang around with. You hang around with tax collectors and sinners, prostitutes. You clearly don't love God because you don't love the law like we do. You know what this is like, right? Start to feel conviction about your sin. I really shouldn't be watching this. I really shouldn't be talking about this. I really shouldn't be talking about this person in this way. And then you, you start to grasp for all the justifications rather than repentance. Right? I should press into Christ. But my wife is self-righteous. I'm feeling convicted. Not mine in real life. Mine's great. Okay? (laughs) Hypothetical. I should press into Christ, right? I feel conviction over the fact that I'm not pressing into Christ in his body. But my wife has these problems. And because she has these problems, I have an excuse not to repent. Because I'm superior to her. Or vice versa. I shouldn't gossip this way. But rather than pressing on to repentance when I feel that conviction, I recognize how other people around me gossip, and I say, well, what they do is far worse than what I do. And I find ways to smooth it over. See, I start to self-justify. I can even start to compare my current works against my old ones. See, I shouldn't think about or look at that. I shouldn't look at women that way, but man, it's not nearly what I used to do, so this isn't too bad. I don't repent. I start to self-justify, don't I? Another way to self-justify, which is not what the Pharisees are doing here, but which happens to many of us is, well, the Pharisees do it to some degree as well, but it's to lower the standard of the law. It's how I self-justify. I feel conviction over a sin, 
And rather than pressing into it, I start to make excuses about it and lower the standard of the law so that I feel better. Well, God doesn't really mean that. God's okay with that kind of thing. He doesn't hold the standard that high. See, God accepts imperfect people. No, he doesn't. Want to deal with the stark reality? God does not accept any imperfect people. None. If he did, the cross wouldn't be necessary. Jesus' perfect life in our place wouldn't be necessary. But we want to lower the standard because we feel conviction and we don't want to go on to repentance. And this is the problem with the Pharisees. And they don't believe that Jesus and his disciples really love God like they do. That's how they're going to respond to it. They're going to begin the the task of self-justification. Look at what they accuse Jesus and his disciples of. They're saying, you're really not lawbreakers, but let me give you a couple of examples. In Luke chapter 5, verse 33, they're going to call him a lawbreaker, or his disciples lawbreakers, and say, you're not lawkeepers like us. You don't love God like we do. They're starting to self-justify. In Luke 5, verse 33, they say this, and they said to him, that's to Jesus, the disciples of John the Baptist fast often and offer prayers And so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. You see, the disciples of John the Baptist and the Pharisees fast all the time. And they pray, but your disciples don't do that. They're partying. Clearly they don't love the law like we do. Hear the comparison? In chapter 6, verse 1 of Luke, this begins again. On a Sabbath, while he, that being Jesus, was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. See, if they rubbed them in their hands, the heads of grain, the Pharisees wanted to accuse them of working. They're hungry. They're poor and they want some food. But the Pharisees want to accuse them of working on the Sabbath. The law never says that a hungry person can't eat on the Sabbath. Never. But the Pharisees want to establish a different standard, one that they can keep, especially as wealthy guys who don't have to work on the Sabbath because everyone's providing everything for them. But some of the Pharisees said, verse 2, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And then Jesus goes and answers them. Here's the point. They're continually accusing Jesus of being someone who doesn't care about the law and therefore doesn't love God like they do. In fact, in chapter 15, verse 1, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. See, you hang out with the lowest of the low. Jesus, you're teaching your disciples to love God, but if you really loved God, you wouldn't be hanging out with those people. You'd be hanging out with us. That's what they're mocking him of. You don't really love God because you don't keep the law. See, they're self-justifying. So how does Jesus answer them? How does he answer them? See, many people assume, because every time we run into the Pharisees, we assume the problem with the Pharisees is what? They just love the law too much, right? The problem with the Pharisees is they love the law too much, they love doctrine too much, That's their big problem. That's the assumption. In fact, it runs around in the culture. If you love the law or love the doctrine, or love doctrine, even in evangelical culture, then you're a Pharisee. That's what we assume the problem is. And so Jesus' answer to the problem doesn't seem to make any sense. Because that's not the problem with the Pharisees. How does he answer them? Jesus is actually suggesting they're not concerned enough with the law. Or with right doctrine. That's how Jesus responds. He accuses the Pharisees of being those who don't really care about the law. He doesn't come to them and say, you know what your problem is? You don't love grace, you just love the law too much. That's not what he says. He says, you know what your problem is? You don't really love the law. You really love God. That's your problem. You have bad doctrine. Because you have bad hearts. He accused them of trying to use the law as a fig leaf 
for the condition of their hearts. You remember Adam and Eve when they fall in the garden? They fall into sin and they recognize they're naked and they're ashamed. They see the truth about themselves when they fall into sin and they're ashamed of the truth about themselves and they immediately do what? They go and get fig leaves and cover themselves. They want to hide their shame. They want to self-justify. They want to cover their own sin. And Jesus is accusing the Pharisees of doing the same thing. He's saying, you don't really love the law. You don't really love the Lord. You're using the law as a way to self-justify. It's like a fig leaf that you're covering yourself with. You are self-justifying through works of the law. You don't really love God because if you did love the Lord, it would show up in the way that you look after others. But you're only looking out after yourself. Instead of using money to care for people and so gain eternal friends, they're using people to gain money and so gain temporal comforts and justification. Look at Luke chapter 16, verse 15. And he said, that's Jesus responded to the Pharisees, you were those who justify yourselves before men. So you put on a fig leaf and you put on a good show. You come up with a bunch of standards that really aren't the law. You call them the law and you put on a good show in front of men. But your hearts don't love God. He goes on and says this. Look what he says. But God knows your hearts. See, these men around here, Jesus is saying to them, all these people in these crowds, they may not see your hearts. They may see what looks like a really good show of self-righteousness. It looks like you got it all together. It looks like your law keepers who love God. Your religious duty is squared away, and you look good in front of these crowds, but I want you to know something. God sees your hearts. Man, we need to know that, don't we? What you're doing might look good in front of the other people at your church or your spouse, or your children, or your coworkers, but God sees your heart. He sees it. You can try to self-justify all you want, but God sees your heart. And he goes on, he says, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. See, Pharisees, you have set up this system of laws and rules and traditions of men that make you look good in front of all of these men and you get exalted for being such holy men, but God sees your hearts and what he sees is an abomination to him. It's an abomination to him. Your religious deeds are an abomination to him. See, it's easy for us to pick up on things like the Old Testament says that homosexuality is an abomination, especially when it's not a sin you're struggling with. But what happens when your greed is shown to be an abomination. See, because what Jesus wants you to know is the way that you use your stuff, the way that you see your possessions, if you're using them to justify yourself, if you're using them to make yourself comfortable, that's an abomination to the Lord. If you're putting on a show of righteousness in front of others, if you're using Christianity as a fig leaf to try to cover your sin, but not really pressing into Christ, it's abomination to the Lord. Every bit as much an abomination as homosexuality is. In fact, the very crowd that Jesus is rebuking here is an abomination to the Lord is not the sexual sinners, although he does tell them to repent, although that sin is also an abomination. The group, though, that he's rebuking are the religious people. And he's rebuking them precisely because the sinners see their need. The religious people have so strapped on fig leaves that look good among men that they don't see their own need. And Jesus, God sees it. He knows. And your self-justification is an abomination. These men are self-justifying and they hate 
Jesus because he challenges their self-justification by exposing the motives of their hearts through a right application of the law. He rightly applies the law to them and exposes the motives of their hearts, and they hate him for it. He shows them their need through lawfully using the law. Look at Matthew chapter 15. Keep your hand in Luke 16 and look at Matthew 15. Here's another place where the Pharisees are going to accuse Jesus. Matthew 15. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said... Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Now, now be clear here, this is not a law in the Old Testament. This is a tradition of the elders. This is a super added sort of law that they've put on. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Look, your disciples aren't washing their hands before they eat Jesus. They're unclean. They clearly don't love God. Because we all know cleanliness is next to godliness, right? Not in the Bible, incidentally. Just American mythology. He answered them, verse 3. Now listen to the, the answer. And why do you break the commandments of God for the sake of your tradition? See, you don't know God. You don't know his law. You don't love it. For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and we all know that's the fifth commandment, right? And that's just for children to obey their parents, isn't it? Not at all. It isn't just children obeying their parents as they're growing up. Honor your father and mother. Here Jesus is going to apply it to caring for them financially when they're elderly. Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father and mother. You, 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 hear what, you hear what's happening here? You dishonor the command of God to uphold your tradition. Your tradition says, hey, you can call everything Corbin. You can, you can donate your money to the church. And therefore, you don't have to care for your elderly parents. So just tell your elderly parents who are in trouble because you understand that children were the social security system in that day. They didn't have a government social security system. You had lots of children, they were your retirement. They were your social security. And what these children are coming along doing, and they still should be, right, parents, right? But they're coming along, and they're saying, you know what? We would care for you financially, but we gave all our money to the church. And Jesus is saying, you're violating the fifth commandment to uphold the tradition of men. Nowhere does God command you to give your money to the church rather than care for your elderly parents who are hurting. Nowhere. But God clearly commands you to honor your father and mother. And he goes on to say why they do that. He need not honor. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So your hearts are far from me. You honor me with your lips, but you don't really love me. You make a good show, but you don't love the Lord. He goes on in chapter 23 of Matthew and verse 23. 23, if you look there, as he's telling all these woes to the scribes and Pharisees, chapter 23, verse 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. That's when you put on a show, when you put on a mask, when you make yourself out to be something you're not, when you're self-justifying or self-righteous, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, In other words, you're so specific about your tithe that you're giving little herbs. You're even looking at your number of herbs, you're counting them out, and you're giving out a percentage of your herbs. That's how fastidious you are keeping the law to tithe. You do that, and he goes on and says this, and have neglected the weightier matters, the law, justice, and mercy, and faithfulness. 
See, you're fastidious in making sure that even your very herbs are counted and you're giving your 10%. But when it comes to caring for people who are in need, you don't care. You write them off. You show what you're really about. You're making a show before men in your incredible legalism with regard to keeping the law and not caring for those who are hurting. And he goes on and he says, these you ought to have done. In other words, Jesus doesn't say, don't tithe. Keep tithing. But you should have done that without neglecting the others. But the fact that you did that and neglected caring for those who were in need demonstrates why you did that in the first place. You did it to make a show before men, not because you love God. And he goes on to tell them, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. It's a pretty big, pretty big smack, isn't it? You will strain out a gnat with regard to the way you tithe, you will get down to the very details of keeping these laws and traditions of men, but you swallow a camel, you watch a poor man starve on the side of the street. You don't get it at all. And you're guiding others, goes on to tell them, woe to you because you cross land and sea to make one convert, only to make him twice the son of hell that you are. The problem with the Pharisees is not that they're too focused on law or sound doctrine. The problem with the Pharisees is that they don't use the law lawfully. They don't understand the law. Their doctrine is poor, and they vociferously protect their poor doctrine because their ultimate problem is a heart problem. They don't love God, and they don't want to face the truth about themselves. They don't want to face it. It's easier to come up with a bunch of laws to make myself, give myself a show or to compare myself other, to others to give, make a show before men that I even start to believe. It's easier to do that than to look the law in the face as a mirror and see the truth about myself and repent. See, the law standing in front of them, pointing them to Jesus pointing them to their need, and he, Jesus, the end, the fulfillment of the law, stands right in front of them, and they don't see their need for him. The law always pointed them to their need for a savior, but they wanted to self-justify. They wanted to put on a fig leaf of law-keeping and religious behavior. They didn't want to see their need for a savior. Doesn't the law do that to you? It shows you your need, doesn't it? It shows you your need. Look at what Jesus says in, in Luke 16, 16. The law and the prophets were until John. Now what's he saying there? He's talking about the Old Testament all the way up through John the Baptist. And many of people don't realize this. John the Baptist is the last Old Testament prophet. He's the last Old Testament prophet. Say, well, he's not in the Old Testament. I find him in the New Testament. But he's sort of the bridge, isn't he? He comes before the New Covenant. He's pointing to the new covenant. Here comes Jesus. He's the, really the greatest of the Old Testament prophets as he bridges the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, pointing to the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament was pointing to. And he says that the law and the prophets were until John. You had all these pointers, and then since then, in other words, since John has pointed to me, who I'm here before you, Jesus is saying, since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. Here I am now. The law pointed forward to me. The prophets pointed forward to me. John the Baptist pointed forward to me. And I'm here. If you really cared about the law, you would see your need for me. I'm standing right in front of you. This has always pointed to me. And yet you don't see me. You see, you search the scriptures because you believe that in them you have life. And it's they that talk about me, yet you will not come to me. You might have life. And everyone forces his way into it. What does that phrase mean? Everyone's forcing their way into the kingdom of God. Here's the problem with this phrase, just so you know, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. The Greek here is, is, is a middle passive verb. Why does that do you any good? Uh, because it's either in the middle or in the passive, and we don't know. 
Scholars argue over whether it's in the middle or the passive. We don't know. And the problem with translating a middle tense of a verb is we don't have that in English. There's really not a way to replicate it well. And so translators argue over how to translate this phrase, whether the phrase is to be translated, everyone forces his way into it, the kingdom of God, or whether it's to be translated, everyone is forcefully urged into it. Is everyone forcing their way into the kingdom, or is everyone forcefully urged into the kingdom? Is Jesus out forcefully urging everyone to come into the kingdom, or is Jesus saying, if you saw your need for me, you would forcefully urge your way in? You would look to me. I I don't know. Is that helpful for you? I don't know. Either way is fine. The bottom line is if you see your need for Jesus, if you recognize that you're a sinner and that he's your only hope, you will seek him with all that you have. You will pursue him. And Jesus goes on and on about that. The other thing is, from the other position is, <laughs> Jesus is out forcefully urging people to come into the kingdom. And we're supposed to be out doing the same thing. And I don't know which way this phrase is supposed to go. Both things are true. Both things are true. Here's, here's the point of what Jesus is getting at. The Old Testament points to him and his kingdom. And he's come and he's brought the kingdom and he's forcefully urging people into the kingdom or they are supposed to be forcefully trying to break into it themselves by seeing him and their need for him. But these men, these Pharisees, aren't interested in that good news. Do you hear that? It's good news. Jesus come. You can now enter the kingdom. The law showed you your need and showed you you weren't able to get there and pointed you forward to the Messiah, the Christ, who would save you. And I've arrived is what he's saying. And I'm here. And you're not interested. Why? Because you don't believe you have a problem. You've bought your own self-justification. You've lied to yourself and you believe it. And nobody lies to me as well as I do. Right? Because I believe my own lies about me. I don't even recognize I'm lying to myself. I'm never suspicious that I might be lying to myself. And so I have to constantly remind myself that I should be suspicious of me. So when one of my brothers, like Jason, comes and confronts me, or my wife confronts me, and I say, that's not what I did, and that's not how I remember it, because I always remember myself better than I was, right? You guys know that's true of you as well. I have to stop and ask the question, are they telling the truth, and am I lying to myself? And I've just finally come to the position that I'm probably lying to me, and they're probably telling the truth. Because I lie to myself so effectively that if I didn't believe that, I would never believe them. Because we self-justify so well, and so do the Pharisees. They have failed to let the law do its work of pointing them to the gospel. And the gospel of the cross makes, and I want you to understand this, the gospel of the cross of Jesus Christ makes no sense apart from the law. doesn't make any sense. A sermon that tells you of the love of God and salvation in Christ, but that does not explain your sin against God's law and your condemnation that's coming to you for that sin is a sermon that makes no sense of the gospel. How could it be good news if there isn't any bad news that I'm being saved from? And what it does is it slips that whole idea of the love of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ from good news into the category of good advice. That's what happens when you drop sin and the law and condemnation from the preaching of the gospel message. Then you slip the gospel message from good news into good advice. It makes a quick little transition over into where, isn't Jesus loving and sacrificial? You should be just like him. That's great advice. You should be. That isn't the good news. That isn't the gospel. See, Jesus loved you as a messed up sinner, one who was condemned, and he gave his life in your place to bring true justification with God. The law holds God's righteous standard before you and announces to you that no self-justification will cover you. 
You can self-justify with all the church going and well-doing you want. But the law makes it clear you're still not able to stand before God. You can self-justify by comparing yourself to others all you want because it makes you feel just a little bit better. You know it's true. But the law still makes clear that no one is righteous. No, not one. You can bury your head in the sand and pretend that God accepts imperfect people because he has some kind of love that's not holy and just. But the law proclaims to you that you can't meet God's righteous standards. No one can. The law points us forward to Christ. It's holy and righteous and good, but it can't save us. We can't justify ourselves. In fact, it's entirely missing the point of the law to think you can keep it in a way that justifies you. God gave us the law to show us our sinfulness. It's a mirror that allows you to see the truth about you. And as you look into that mirror, you can try to put lipstick on that pig all you want, but it's still a pig in the mirror. Jesus came to fulfill the precepts of the law for us, the commands of the law, so that we would be credited with his righteousness. You hear that? So if God doesn't accept imperfect people, then what do any of us do? We look to the one perfect man, Jesus Christ, who kept the law in every way that we failed to. We look to him, and his righteous life is credited to our account. Jesus came to fulfill the penalty of the law for us so that we'd be forgiven for our violation of it. See, if we've broken the law over and over and over again and God's going to condemn us, what hope do we have? We look to Jesus Christ who paid our penalty on the cross that was due to us. See, his righteousness is credited to us and our sin, our unrighteousness, is credited to him on the cross. And that's our hope. That's what the law points us to. Yet the Pharisees mock Jesus for this. And many unbelievers mock him today as well. See, I don't need Jesus. That religion stuff is for weak people. Yep, exactly. I, I get tired of hearing Christians try to defend that when I hear various politicians or public personalities on TV and they're saying, Christianity is for weak people. You guys heard that? Weak-minded people, emotionally weak people, people who don't know how to deal with the problems of life apart from some kind of appeal to God. That's who Christianity's for. And I hear Christian thinkers get on and try to defend us and say, we're not weak, we're smart. Rather than saying, you're absolutely right. We're weak. We need Jesus. You're weak too. The sad thing is you're too prideful to recognize it. See, from the moment we fell in sin in the garden, we have needed Jesus. And God has promised him. The whole Old Testament up through John the Baptist pointed to him. The law leads us to Christ and our need for him. And Jesus is saying he came to fulfill the law and to save us into his kingdom the law is necessary to unmask our self-justification, to show us that we're worse than we want to admit. Go through the Ten Commandments and apply them to your life. You'll see what I mean. You shall have no other gods before me. That doesn't mean God comes first and then you can have something else you worship second and then something else third. That means in my presence. Has your heart ever been given to worship something else? Probably all the time. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. I'll just skip the second commandment and go there. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Here's a question for you. Have you ever sung or spoken about the Lord with a heart that is not rightly exalting him as you do so? Just mouth the word. See, it's not just when you drop GD on people. You take his Lord, the Lord's name in vain every time you use the Lord's name in a way that's unworthy of him with a heart that doesn't exalt him. Ever been there? Keep the Sabbath holy. You have rest in the Lord? You trust him for six days and rest for a day? 
You ever think to yourself, I have so much to do that I can't possibly take a day to rest? You don't trust the Lord's provision? Honor your father and mother. Did you obey your your parents perfectly as a child? And do you honor them now as an adult? Do you look at your wealth as a way to care for them in their old age? Or do you look to the state to do that in some nursing home you can send them to so you don't have to pay any attention to serving and giving yourself for them? See, don't, don't murder. You ever hated anybody? Don't commit adultery. You ever lusted in your heart or committed adultery? Don't bear false witness. You ever gossiped or slandered against anybody? Ever passed on a bad report? Don't steal. Well, I've never taken anything from a store. Have you ever used your boss's time to play around and do your own stuff while he's paying you on the clock? Don't covet your neighbor's anything. You ever walk around the mall, think about all the things that you wish you had, not being thankful for what you do have? See, and I didn't even deal with the idolatry one. And you already recognize, when I hold the mirror up, I'm not in good shape. What I see is an ugly picture. And that's what the law does. It shows us our need for the only one who never sinned and who paid the penalty for our sin. The law comes in and rips the fig leaves off us that we attempt to self-justify with. So the law is necessary to unmask our self-justification, and the gospel is necessary to bring true justification in Christ. The gospel shows us God is more gracious than we ever imagined. See, the law shows us we're worse than we ever knew, and the gospel shows us that God is far more gracious than we ever imagined. Jesus makes an interesting transition, though, and I want to look there so we can finish this passage. Lest he be accused of not taking the law seriously, look at verse 17 of Luke 16. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. What's a dot? There's, in Hebrew, there's a dalet. There's this letter dalet, which is like our D, and there's a letter resh, which is like our R. And if you look at the difference between the, the dalet and the resh, that's what Jesus is talking about, which doesn't help you at all. So I'll give you another example. If I come to the English language, when you dot your I, it's a very insignificant little mark, isn't it? But it tells you the difference between an I and, an, and, a, and a small L, doesn't it? So you dot it to make a distinction. And what Jesus is pointing at is he's pointing at the resh and the dalet, but it's an equivalency when I say the dotting of an I. The idea is, is that, that Jesus is coming in and saying, it's easier for the whole universe to pass away. Think about the universe. Earth and heaven, all of it. It's easier for that all to pass away than for one dot of the law to pass away or to become void. Jesus is telling the Pharisees, you don't think I take the law seriously? You don't take the law seriously. In Christ, the law is satisfied and fulfilled and becomes for us a gracious guide. Because we're saved in Christ, the law is, was... Excuse me, I'm sorry. Before we were saved in Christ, the law was out there, out there, right? Making demands on us. Was out there making demands on us. When we're saved in Christ, the law is written in here on our hearts by the Holy Spirit. It isn't out there making demands on us. It's in our hearts and we love it because it guides us in how we please the Father. It's no longer a way to gain acceptance with the Father that we keep because we think somehow we'll gain acceptance with him, which, by the way, it never could accomplish. It is now seen by us as something we keep because we are already accepted by the Father in Christ, and so we want to do what pleases him. We love the law because it shows us our need for Christ and because it shows us how God is lovingly guiding our lives to honor him. Now what's interesting is the next verse, look at verse 18. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now why does Jesus throw in this unqualified statement about divorce here? 
Because in other places, he qualifies it, right? Here he doesn't. He just says, you divorce and get remarried, you're committing adultery. Period. You marry that divorced person as the person married, you're committing adultery. Period. No qualifications, no exception clauses. Now, in Matthew, he does tell us if someone commits adultery in your marriage, you're free to divorce, in, although not encouraged to. You can because of the hardness of your hearts, Jesus says, which is not a good thing, right? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 7 that if, if, you're, if you're abandoned by an unbelieving spouse, then you're, then you're free. Again, not encouraging you to divorce, but making an exception. But Jesus leaves the exception clauses out here. And as soon as we read a statement like verse 18, we're immediately grasping for the exceptions, right? What are they? This is pretty absolute. And Jesus being absolute on purpose, what's he doing? He's showing the Pharisees that he upholds the law and that they don't because they've so weakened the covenant of marriage for their own convenience that they demonstrate their lack of love for God by how they treat their wives. Did you know that in the, among the Pharisees, they actually had rules that it was permissible to divorce your wife for as simple things as she made a bad meal? She made a bad meal. Or you found a prettier woman. Right? So the Pharisees had rules much like we have today. And Jesus is saying, I want you to understand that there isn't a good reason to divorce somebody that the law has clearly said from the beginning with regard to the covenant of marriage, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. One man, one woman, for life in the covenant of marriage. Period. Period. That's the way it's supposed to be. Now, are there exceptions offered in the scripture? Yes, there are. Why is Jesus being so strong here? Because he wants the Pharisees to understand, you don't really uphold the law. You don't get it. The way you treat the law, particularly your wives, demonstrates what your heart toward God is really like. If we really love God, then we keep commit our commitment to marriage because our lives are given for others and not for ourselves. That's what the Holy Spirit does in us. He transforms us so that we delight in keeping God's law even when it's difficult to do because we delight in pleasing our Father who saved us because of his great mercy and love for us. But So why is there so much divorce be among professing Christians? Because there is, right? One answer might be because people don't know the law. I mean, the simplest answer is because we're sinners too and sometimes we do the wrong thing. But another might be the reason it's so prevalent is because people don't know the law. They're essentially told that no one is saved, or excuse me, that everyone is saved by accepting Jesus, and then they're free to live however they want. Come down, answer the altar call, raise your hand, pray the prayer, live however you want. They haven't been taught that Christ doesn't free us to sin, but frees us from sin. Jesus doesn't get rid of the law. He fulfills the law. Jesus doesn't teach us how to disregard the law. Jesus teaches us how to use the law lawfully. He teaches us that the law pointed to and was fulfilled in him. He teaches us the law exposes our sin and inability to self-justify self through good works and that we need him. He teaches us that the law is holy and righteous and good and that we ought to keep it not to earn our Father's approval, but keep it because we love the Father whose approval we've already received freely in Christ. Another answer might be that they don't have a relationship with Jesus. There's lots of people who falsely profess Christ. They don't have a relationship with Jesus in which the Holy Spirit has united them to, to him and transformed them. Thus, they haven't been born again. Thus, they haven't been transformed by the Holy Spirit. They haven't had the law written on their hearts. So why do they care to keep it? It's just an external demand out there. It's not something in here. Thus, they use the Christian religion as a kind of fig leaf for an attempt at self-justification. Some of you may be guilty of that. Not the divorce part. Maybe you are, but using Christianity as a fig leaf rather than looking to Christ. 
As a result, they don't see value in sacrificing themselves for their spouse as Jesus sacrificed himself for them because they've never experienced that kind of grace and love. See, I'm sure there are other reasons, but let's be clear about this. Jesus exalts both the law and the gospel. The law strips us of any self-righteousness and leaves us naked and ashamed. And the gospel clothes us in the righteousness of Christ. And we ought to praise Jesus for that. We have no hope apart from him. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to be a people who use the law lawfully, that we would not pursue self-justification or self-righteousness, that we would not use Christianity as some sort of fig leaf, we would recognize our need for Jesus, that as the law is held up before us as a mirror, we would see the ugliness of what is in front of that mirror And we would repent and turn to your son who's the only one who can cover us and clothe us with righteousness. That we would trust in him. Father, we pray that we continually press into that and that your Holy Spirit would continually work in us to turn us to love your law because of what your son has done. That we want to love God and love others well because the work of your Holy Spirit in applying the justifying work of Christ on the cross to our lives. But help us to be like our Savior Jesus in exalting both the law and the gospel. Help us to constantly recognize our need for him and be changed. We recognize we fail constantly, but Jesus never did. That he is our hope. Help us to press into him. Father, use the law to strip us and show us our shame so that we look to the gospel and see your son and are covered with his robes of righteousness. We trust in him and him alone. And then help us to live like him as a result so that you would be exalted. Father, we pray for those who don't know you, who've only treated Christianity like a fig leaf. We pray, Father, that they would flee from self-justification and self-righteousness and they would look to Jesus as their only hope. In Jesus' name, amen.